Welcome to The Naked Truth, real talk about West Coast Swing. My name is Eric. And I'm Deborah. And today we are chatting with a highly respected dancer, teacher, and judge. His dance journey almost 30 years ago when he discovered country western couples and line dancing in San Diego while serving in the U.S. Navy in the late 80s. He soon began competing on the UCWDC couples competition circuit and worked his way up to Division I. He was also a member of the three-time UCWDC world champion dance team, Midnight Cowboys. In the early 90s, he developed a passion for West Coast Swing, and he went on to win two U.S. Open Swing titles, one in Showcase and the other in Strictly Swing. He recently relocated to Orlando, Florida to be closer to his 12-year-old son, Brandon. He also teaches, judges, and performs all over the United States and Europe, and he has more than a decade of experience as a chief judge. He is also the founder and co-director of Charlotte Westy Fest in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he is the co-founder of GPDIA, Judges Certification and Training Program for West Coast Swing, along with Michael Kim and Phil Adams. He is one of the three GPDIA Grandmaster West Coast Swing judges and course facilitators, and he spreads his judging knowledge throughout the world. Here to talk about his experience and perspective, please welcome to the show, Mr. Gary Jobst. Hello. Hello. How are you guys all doing? Good. Good. Good to be here. I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed your show over the last, uh, what, how long has it been going on now? Almost a year. Yeah. Almost a year. Yeah, I think I've, I I kind of fell off for a little bit, but I'm looking forward to catching up on them. I think I saw the first or listened to the first half a dozen. And I was doing a lot of road trips back and forth to Orlando. <laughs> but now I'm not doing that road trip anymore because I live here. So uh, so I don't have as many, as much time on the road anymore, which is nice, but different story. Yes. No, that's okay. Well, and, we, and we might get to that after. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to start with the first question that we ask everyone when we're talking about West Coast Swing specific. Um, how did you get started with West Coast Swing? Well, um, you know, West Coast Swing, it was kind of interesting. First of all, I started off dancing. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun story for me to tell because it involves my older brother. I happened to be on leave at, um, while I was in the Navy back home in Phoenix. And it was one of those crazy things back before cell phones. And I had borrowed my father's car. And I went to go hang out with some friends from high school, and I fell asleep on their couch. I drove in the next morning at like 6.45, and 7 o'clock, my dad had to leave for work. So, of course, he was freaking out. And then Friday night, of course, he wouldn't let me use the car. And it's the weekend that I'm like, what do I do? My brother happened to be in town on leave as well. He was in the Navy. And so he was going out to a country bar, and I begged him if I could go with him. Because I didn't, I just like, I, I cannot just sit at home on a Friday night. And so I did. I went down to the bar, rode on the back of his motorcycle to the bar and walked into this place. And I was like, wow, there's I haven't seen this many tight jeans and mini skirts in my entire life. I kind of like this. And then they were all asking me to dance. And I'm like, I don't know how. Uh, but they were all willing to teach me. And it was a bar called Toolies, I think, in Phoenix. It's gone now. But um, so I, I loved it. And then after that, the rest of that weekend, I was talking to my brother about dancing because he had been dancing in San Diego and he was in a dance club down in San Diego. So I went to San Diego. Uh, I transferred there right at the same time he was transferring out of San Diego. And I went to the place where he was uh, hanging out and where he knew the people in this dance club. And uh, one of his buddies came over to me, tapped me on the shoulder and I was like, hey, are you Gary? Are you our, uh, Bob's brother? And I said, yeah. And he says, you're on the wrong side of the bar. I was sitting on the bar where the drinkers were and the dancers were on the other side of the bar. So I went over there and just uh, started hanging out with them and met the teachers. It was a mother and daughter team that's uh, um, out of San Diego, uh, Julie and Shirley Wilson. Um, and then about three months later, I started dating the daughter. So I, got, <laughs> I started dancing six days a week, uh, if not seven. Um, this was back before Achy Breaky, um, but country was still strong in San Diego and still a lot of fun. Um, at the time, West Coast Swing was not country. In fact, it was looked down upon in the country scene. Um, my teachers were like, no, don't do that. That's not country. And I learned East Coast Swing. And I was hanging out with a guy who was literally one of the dancers that used to be on the American Bandstand as an East Coast Swing dancer back in the day. And um, I put it off and put it off and put it off. And then um, I ended up partnering up with uh, Pam Ford who is still on the circuit today. She lives in, uh, in Nevada, uh, country circuit. Um, and uh, just before I left on a Westpac cruise, um, which turned into Desert Storm. Um, but so I said, okay, when I get back, I'm going to start learning West Coast Swing. So I came back. I went uh, in a, a 
month and a half between me getting back and uh, Tom Maddox's Buena Park event in February, we got two routines together, put them on the floor, and was my first time ever competing in UCWDC couples. I did two-step and waltz, and we won both of them without a routine. Um, and then um, as soon as I got back to San Diego, I started taking dance lessons with uh, Mary Manzella. And um, then uh, in May, which is uh, Memorial Day weekend, Steve Zener's event, um, I, we put our first West Coast Spring routine on the floor. So I started in February and put the first routine on the floor in May. Why did you end up going to West Coast Swing despite your instructors saying, don't do it? Because I loved it, because it looks so much so cool. I was like, the basics look really boring, but the dance looks like it's so much fun. <laughs> you know, you get to improvise and stuff like that. In fact, one of my friends who, who I knew from before um, when I was in the Navy, when he, we used to go out freestyle dancing and stuff, he showed up at the bar one night and I was like, what are you doing here? He didn't, I didn't even know he knew what country music was. And he saw me out there doing West Coast Swing, and I said, are you surprised? He said, no, you still dance the same way you did when you freestyle, now you just do it with a partner. <laughs> so I still moved the same way, and I, you know, I, I, got to, I got to add my own personality, which you don't really do. And, you know, of course, the dance was a lot different back in the, in the late 80s than it is now, but it was, uh, it was that opportunity to have a little bit of kind of freedom within the dance and, and not so much structure, you know? Yeah. That's, one of the things that, that's one of the things I really love about it. It's yeah. nice to hear that you like the dance because we uh, we have a lot of people that can't have come on the show and when they first were exposed to the dance they really didn't like it so it's nice to hear that you did um, and by the way thank you so much um, for your service thank you so you've mentioned some of the people who taught you both in country and um, and some of the people that you've met in West Coast Swing who has influenced you most as a West Coast Swing dancer and as a dance professional in general. Um, I think as a West Coast swing dancer, uh, of course, Mary Manzella might be my very first teacher. Um, ironically, it was a very, very short lived thing, but only because, you know, I was already dancing six days a week when I was learning, beginning, learning West Coast swing. So I'd come back the next week wanting to learn more patterns. And mm -hmm. of course, beginning a West Coast swing series class, we'd have to review the same patterns over and over again. And I was like, no, I want to learn more. And so I ended up doing that with my partner and I, I switched over to Michael Kim at that time. So Michael Kim had a, a significant impact on me as a, as a um, dancer in the beginning and a professional also. I mean, the way he ran Starlight Dance Studio for decades was just amazing. Um, and then I, I relocated from San Diego. I transferred to my, my Navy uh, duty station to Long Beach. And uh, literally, like, the first person I bumped into when I checked into the base in Long Beach was Mark Shifley. Hmm. Um, and I had already been occasionally popping up to... Uh, to press box on Friday nights or cowboy boogie on Sunday nights to go dancing. And so I moved up there and then it was like literally again, dancing six nights a week, but almost always West coast swing. And, um, you know, so it was just kind of one of those things that I transitioned over. And even when I went there, I ended up uh, partnering up with two different country partners and I also had a swing partner and I ended up joining the midnight cowboys at that time. And they were really big into swing. So as a teacher, probably the biggest influence was Phil Adams because I probably took more classes from him being my coach in couples competition, my, the coach and choreography, the dance team that I was on. Plus I used to take a lot of workshops from him. So, and that's how I also got exposed to Mario loved Mario's humor in the classes that he would teach. And that was kind of an influence for me. I wanted it to be a lot of fun and crack a lot of stupid jokes and, and do that kind of stuff. But, and also of course get some good stuff, but, um, it was the it was the old uh, Phil used to bring Mario in on Thursday night before the U oh Wednesday night before the U.S. Open every year, and uh, so it was literally you were there every year on Wednesday night even before I was going to the U.S. Open. I would take the class from Mario and then finally bit the bullet and went to the Open. Would you say that also um, Mario and and Mark Shifley were someone that you were you gravitated towards? Also, because because, you know, sometimes you gravitate towards people that are li like build. They're both tall like you are. And it's it's you, you know, we don't see many tall. Right. West Coast swing males. Um, would you say that that was one of the reasons that um, you also enjoyed watching West Coast swing? Um, well, interestingly enough, I mean, the first person that I enjoyed watching do West Coast swing was Tom Maddox, uh -huh. um, because when I met Mark Shifley, he was a country dancer. Right. He was not a West Coast swing dancer. He did do West Coast swing, 
But that was back when he still showed up at at press box in his cowboy boots and his Wranglers. And, you know, so, I mean, he was not uh, a a West Coast swing dancer yet. Um, He was more of a country person. Um, But, I mean, I I think, you know what, honestly, Deborah, not really. Um, There was no one that I looked up to. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Literally no one. Um, Obviously, figuratively, I did. But um, I liked Mario's style because he was so smooth and the musicality and everything else. And, you know, I, I, a lot of the people that I was exposed to in the beginning, um, you know, they're not around as much anymore. I mean, I loved watching Kenny Wetzel dance. Um, when I first started out, of course, Phil Adams was so smooth and, and Martin Parker um, and Wayne Bott. Oh, yeah, I loved watching Wayne. Um, but, I mean, like a lot of the people that people look at now and go, oh, yeah, well, back in the day when Jason Col- – I mean, I remember Jason Colosino before he started dancing. Right. Let's go swing. And Kyle and Sarah, when they were like 12 and 13, I remember running and hiding from Tatiana when she was so uh, crazy and scary when she was 13. (laughs) So, I mean, a lot of these folks I knew before they even, I knew you, Deborah, uh, I guess you could say BR before Robert. Um, (laughs) We met at the, at the North river bar when you first started learning West Coast swing. That's right. So, and I was back in DC or back in New York teaching. And so, uh, um, the folks that I look at, I mean, the first event I ever went to and saw Robert Royston, compete at he was competing division three right in country so you know it's it, it was fun to be able to think back to that i mean i remember jessica cox being wheeled out of the u.s open floor in a little red wagon when she was yeah. five years old mm-hmm. so yeah, you've I mean, been around a long time <laughs> yeah so yeah so, you, so the people that i mentioned were probably the biggest influence and barry duran his showman and barry jones the showmanship right. of barry jones was just incredible right. You know, you've really um, carved a niche for yourself as a judge over the years. How did you first become a judge, and how did that role become a focus for your career? Um, well, the first time I became a judge, I was actually at um, one of Tom Maddox's events when he had me uh, step in as a judge. And um, and I found out afterwards that it was something that I was pretty good at. Um and he, he didn't necessarily do a whole lot of training, but he did evaluating afterwards. And he had this saying, he said, you know, if you're, if you've got to pick the top five and place the top five, he said, you know, if you have three out of five in the top five, you're a good judge. If you have four out of five in the top five, you're a great judge. If you have five out of five in the top five, you're an amazing judge. And it didn't even matter what order it was in. If they were in that group, then you were a good judge. And, you know, I found out that it was something that I was good at and, so I ended up starting to do more and more. I, I, I kind of accidentally fell onto the idea of dressing nicely when I was wanting to be considered more professionally. It's one of those crazy things where I was out at an event. I had been at a social gathering in a suit. And I showed up at an event in a suit and I heard about, I got 15 to 20 times that night. Dang, Gary, you clean up good. <laughs> I was like, so next thing you know, I started to wear suits when I would go to the dance events as a judge and I realized it was that old saying of, you know, dance for the job you want, not for the job you have. So I, I started doing that. And then it's kind of one of those interesting scenarios where I was judging at an event, um, in Las Vegas. And I was one of the younger judges on the panel by a lot of years. And, um, basically what happened was that those, that was back in the day when we didn't have computers you showed up with score sheets and the chief judge would sit on one side of the table with the tally sheet and the judges would all sit on the other side of the table and we would read off our scores and the chief judge would enter them into the tally sheet. And then we would watch the chief judge do relative placement. So I'm watching this individual who also happened to be like a founding member of the world swing dance council and everything else and had been around for decades. And I looked at it and I said, um, you're doing that wrong. (laughs) And he looked, he looked at me, he was like, what? No, I'm not. And I'm like, yes, you are. And then Stan Jaquish was sitting right next to me. And Stan goes, yeah, you are doing it wrong. Turns out he was. At the end of the weekend, I kind of got thrown under the bus to the event director, but the other judges backed me up. And the next year, that event director asked me to be the chief judge. And that's how the rest is history? Well, the rest is history to a point. Uh, What happened then was some friends of mine from Phoenix, I think I had just moved to Phoenix, and Bobby and Trudy uh, Robinson, um, Bobby recently passed away. I miss her so much. But Bobby and Trudy Robinson were the um, event directors, and they were there at the event, the first event that I was ever chief judge at. And they saw how it went, 
and they came up and asked me if I would be the chief judge for Phoenix. And Phoenix was literally my second event ever. And um, it was the biggest. There was one where you had 112 couples in novice back in the 90s. You know, nowadays you only get that like in Budapest or something. But, you know, it was back then that was the biggest event of the year. So all of a sudden I pop up and I'm the chief judge at Phoenix. And everybody's going, what the heck? Where did he come from? And the only thing that was uh, mentioned that I didn't that they didn't like was I think it was uh, might have been Carlito who said I was too military <laughs> <laughs> because I made sure the event ran on time and I was really really obsessive about it being organized and on time and we would not wait for judges we would not wait for competitors we started because we wanted to be on time and get it done and um, it worked out well yeah before we talk about your chief judging I want to first just get your impression of uh, what skills and competencies you think are essential for a qualified West Coast swing judge. And how did you develop those in yourself? I mean, you kind of just got thrown into judging. Was it just through experience or did you have to learn things along the way? Well, I mean, you have to learn things along the way because that's what helps you to get more, um, to get quicker. Mm -hmm. Um, I think because I was a judge back in the day when you were a big contest was 20 couples. And then I just saw it grow and grow and grow. It kind of made it a little bit easier to be able to transition through that. Um, so I didn't even think of it as a learning process at that time, although it definitely was. Right. Um, I think that it, it's ironic. It's one of those things that I've talked about in my judging classes. But when I first started judging, I, was too, uh, I wasn't willing to admit that I needed glasses. So I would be <laughs> judging people and I would judge them based upon shape and form. And then I would kind of just coyly walk by and stroll past them to look at their number to write down their numbers and, you know, trying to look cool. But, and no one knew what was happening. But and then when I finally got glasses and I realized I don't want to change the way I'm judging, I want to be judging on the big picture. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at, and of course, later I started to realize the more definitive terms that described it. It was, you know, body flight, frame, posture, poise, all those different types of things that really kind of got my attention more than anything else. So it wasn't just, it wasn't always about the tricks and the flash and the trash. It was, you had to have that foundational stuff. And because my background as a judge, even though it was kind of uh, acquired accidentally, was looking at the big picture and not being hung up on little things here and there. And, you know, and then when you have to kind of split hairs, then of course you do have to go to those fine points even more and more. Yeah. So what skills do you think make for a a really good West Coast swing judge? Understanding of the dance. Um, I think that West Coast swing is a dance that has obviously had a lot of changes over the years. When you say a lot of changes, what do you mean? Well, I mean, the conversation has changed significantly. The, The way that I look at it is, you know, you go back, you know, 20 years ago and it was the guy led and the woman followed, period. And it wasn't much else. And there wasn't hijacking. There wasn't all that stuff. And then, of course, the only way uh, the follower could get a word in edgewise was to hijack. So then she started doing that. And then it kind of kind of transitioned from there to being more like a two one-way conversations where it was like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Okay, now you're done. Now I'm going to do what I want to do. Okay, now it's your turn to do what you want to do. And then it went back and forth. And now it's become this stance that's an interactive two-way conversation all the way through. Um, so you're listening as well, as well as talking. And even while you're talking, you're also listening to your partner or watching for their nuances of what is it that they're doing that you can work off of, or what are they saying that might drive where you want to go with your dance? So seeing that as a dancer and and living through that as a dancer and watching it on the floor, you know, you started to see how I I started to see, I, I still want the fundamentals as far as I'm looking at it. The fundamentals haven't changed. Um, it's still, uh, you know, the basic rhythm dance. It's still got doubles and triples. There still should be a triple step anchor at the end. Not always, but there still needs to be an anchor of some kind. Um, back in the day, we used to call a floating anchor bad ballroom West Coast swing. Now they <laughs> call it a tech, a style. And, and it's like, I used to always say, well, no, uh, anchors sink. Buoys float. So right. don't float this dance. And it, uh, so I'm hoping that they come up with a different term instead of floating. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I always look to see that conversation. And, and you know, it, it stems back to when when I first started judging, we all used the score sheets that had 
timing technique and teamwork, variety, contrast, and showmanship. Musicality wasn't even on it, you know, and, and now they've kind of combined that, but you still have those. In my head, I still, I still focus on those. Um, but I think that experience is a lot to do with it. Experience dancing with different styles, um, whether it goes back to dancing with Annie Hirsch uh, back in the day, or even some of the uh, classic Lindy Hoppers, uh, which I still love to grab a Lindy Hopper and get them on the floor to do West Coast Swing because it's just an absolute blast. Um, and it's got old school connection to it. Um, also to... Um, Wait, stop. To, what do you mean old school? Well, I mean, like when Lindy and West Coast Swing were so almost, you couldn't tell them apart. Okay. If you go back and look at the West Coast Swing uh, top 20 years video and go back to the first couple of years, Everybody would look at that now and say that that's Lindy. Well, is that you connection know? or more a uh, style of the dance? Uh, it's connection for me. Okay. Um, because if it was style of the dance, I would have become a Lindy Hopper. Okay. And, you know, that just kind of popped into my head. But then if it was really the style of that dance that I loved as much as West Coast Swing, that's what I would have been doing. Um, but it, it's that connection. It's, I, I love to feel a good, solid connection. I like to know if I, if I close my eyes, I should be able to tell where my partner is. But right. um, and then you see that adjustment happening within the partnership. But I think that as a judge, having experienced that all the way up to now, you know, some people talk about the idea of a visual connection more than a physical connection. It's confusing to me, but that's beside the point. Um, I just I like to uh, um, I'm still looking for those fundamentals. I'm still looking for the good timing, good technique, good teamwork. I want to see that they know how to do a triple step. I want to see that they're doing. Um, the triple, you know, because again, if you go back to the beginning when I first started dancing, we were all we were dancing was blues and R and B. Um, you know, a lot of people like to focus on blues, but I, I think of it when I was first dancing, we danced to Motown, funk, and blues. Me too. So yeah, I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't just blues, mm -hmm. and so I like to see that idea of being able to dance with a swung triple if the music has a swung triple, or a straight triple if the music has a straight triple, or a body triple if the music doesn't have a set one of either one of them. So I, I, you can see that. And that's kind of the, those three are what's kind of been the big changes in the dance over the last 20 years. You know, it was right. used to be always, you know, a swung triple. And right. nowadays a lot of people don't learn it that way. Right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that having an understanding of the dance is really important as a judge. Um, Deborah and I have talked personally and on this show about how knowing the dance alone is not necessarily qualifications for, say, judging or teaching the dance, right? Like there's a different right. skill set involved in judging. What are the separate skills that you think a judge in particular needs to have? To they be need to be judge. They need they need to be judgmental. Um, <laughs> <laughs> critical. Yes, you need you need to be critical. You need mm -hmm. to be willing to. And this is something that for me, obviously, transitioned over as a chief judge, but. You need to be willing to 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 be comfortable with your opinion, you know, Standing and not second your guess yourself. Yeah, second, you can't second guess yourself, um, you know. And when you're, you have to look at it and go, okay, that one, that's the one I like more. Okay, now if I have ten more seconds, twenty more seconds, I might be able to tell you exactly why. Mm -hmm. But in five seconds, I might not be able to tell you why. I just know I like this one better. Um, and when we have five seconds. In a Jack and Jill, sometimes I can't tell you why. In a heated competition, I put you as a yes and you as an alternate one. You know, I mean, just a matter of comparison to everybody else. But I think just kind of being comfortable with the idea of putting everything into your head and ranking it out like that and um, being comfortable with your decisions, um, I think that's one of the big things. Um, minimizing outside influence. Um, when I say outside influence, I don't mean other people. I mean outside as far as your own biases. You know, one of the things that I always, everyone always says, you know, a good judge can't have any biases. And I think that's an absolute bunch of garbage. Everybody has biases. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's what I, I think. What, uh, it's not a good judge can't have any biases as a good judge should be able to put their biases aside. That's where I was going. Yeah. Um, but there are people that say that a good judge shouldn't have any biases. And the reality of it is, is you have them. Everyone does. Mm -hmm. And as I often say, it's not a matter of not having them. It's not a matter of being aware of what they are so that you can minimize the impact of those biases. Right. I agree with that. Um, you know, and I know I have my biases, but at the same time I sit there and look at it and go, okay, no, that's not, you know, I might like a particular thing, but they're not doing it as well, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
I've got to look at it. You know, there's a lot of conversation that happens out there as far as, um, you know, this is something I don't know if it's, it's this is the right time to, to say it. But, you know, people talk about the idea about preferential treatment for their students. Mm. And, you know, it, because this dance has such unique approaches to it, if I have a student who is dancing it and doing things the way that I teach it and is doing it very well, then I will more than likely score them higher than someone else. Because if I'm judging someone, if I, let's say it's me and Deborah, I'm judging Deborah's students. She teaches one way. I teach a different way. They're both executing them perfectly. And I look over at Deborah's students and put them above the way that mine, but they're both executing our, our personal techniques perfectly. Mm-hmm. But I place Deborah's students higher than mine. That's shouldn't a good I judge. Start, shouldn't I start teaching Deborah's way? <laughs> really? No, but, but, but that's, I mean, but yeah, exactly. So, but that's the key point is, if I'm looking for better dancing, but you know, if they're executing at the same level and the performance is the same way and everything else is the same way, then more than likely at that same time, you're going to, if everything else is even across the entire plane, except for this person is doing the technique the way that I do it, this person is doing the technique that's the way another one does it, you're more than likely going to put your student higher than the other right. because they're, they're demonstrating the technique that you prefer. So, But it's not a matter of bias it's just a matter of you know preference. i don't think i don't consider that bias yeah that's i mean that's preference mm-hmm. especially because the dance has so much of a uniqueness to it mm-hmm. everybody right. has a different approach sure um so everyone knows that you 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 travel a lot and you're a, you're a chief judge um what is the role of a chief judge and how does a chief judge impact competitions do you pick the judging staff determine the judging panels or determine the rules of the competitions Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. <laughs> Next. Can you be more the, elaborate, please? <laughs> um, my job, herding cats. Um, and I'm not talking about the competitors. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Um, sometimes, but yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is is that it's the organization of the contests. Mm-hmm. Making the decisions as to how, bi- um, how big the heats are going to be. Um, making the decisions as to the format of the competitions. Um, as far as, uh, I'll, I'll go through the easy part first because the judging assignments and the schedule and everything else, um, it depends on the event. Uh, there are some events where I have literally helped them design the entire judging panel, hire everybody, um, go through that entire, uh, rigmarole of selecting judges from variety. I mean, the perfect example of that in itself was Chicago classic, the year that Adam Leibowitz ran it. Adam basically turned the judging thing over to me and said, I want to hire judges. And we looked, I looked for geographical diversity. I looked for gender diversity. I wanted representation from every corner of the United States if possible, every region of the United States if possible, and as much gender diversity as possible too. And um, he basically said, make it happen. And that was primarily for the highest level divisions. And everything else was kind of filled in. But I, that's like the only event except my own where I've had the control over who who the hires, who the judges were that's hired. Um, so generally, I don't make up the judging schedule of the assignments. Um, a lot of times the event director does, and that's only because the event director knows the contracts. The event director knows what the commitments are that he's got from his staff. Now, I will then turn around and review that judging schedule and make a lot of suggestions and changes. And sometimes they're not suggestions. Sometimes they're this, this has to happen. This needs to change. This needs to be done. You need to change this and this. This person should be judging these divisions. This person should not, whatever it might be along those lines. But, um, you know, because I don't know the commitments. You yeah, know, but um, isn't it the, I mean, I don't mean to interrupt you, but, you know, I've, I've ran several events and um, I tell my head judge, here's the, here's the commitments that my professionals have. And I would like you to do the judging schedule. Why hire a head judge if the event director is going to take control over who judges what? And then I, I feel like that's a conflict of interest. I feel like it should be the head judge to decide who judges what contests when. Otherwise, why have you? Well, you know, I, I think that the judging panel is, I mean, I, I mean, let's put it this way. I've got half of the events that I do do exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, uh, judge chief judge three events in Europe where I don't even know three quarters of the judges. So for me to make assignments based upon people who I don't even know who they are, I would that's say that's a different scenario. Situation. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I would agree. Um, but so 
I prefer it like that. Um, what, what that takes with a lot of event directors is a, an organizational status or a, not an organizational ability. That's the wrong word. They have to be so organized and be able to put all that information together in a spreadsheet to be able to make it happen in an expeditious manner. Because otherwise, I've done that before, and all of a sudden, I send it to the chief, the, the event director, and he's like, "Well, no, I can't. This person's got a workshop. This person's this way. This person's actually DJing that session. They're not available to judge, well, and so they don't organize it well enough." Well, here's the other thing I'm going to say then, in 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 relationship to that, uh, I, there are head judges who you you give them you their um you give them the professionals, you tell them like you know what their contract is, and then the head judge looks at the schedule and sees when their workshops are, and that's part of. You know, being a good event director is delegating and you mm -hmm. hire people for their specific job because of their expertise. And right. I find that there are a lot of event directors who micromanage and get involved in things that they shouldn't get involved in. Like, like, so just like head judges are, are, are meant to keep the integrity of an event. And then a head judge will, I mean, then an event director will override a head judge's decision even though the head judge is looking out for the event to make sure that they're abiding by the rules. And now the person that gets thrown under the bus is the head judge. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that, but I can tell you that uh, in my entire career, that's happened twice. And both times I've stood my ground. And if the event director wasn't happy with it, I've actually had it happen where there was a situation with an event director or we got into an argument over something in the DJ booth and I looked at him and I said, fine, if you want to do it this way, I'm going to walk out of the event right now. I'm leaving and you can take care of it yourself. Right. And he basically changed his mind, <laughs> came back later and apologized and says, you're right. I need to trust you to do your job, trust your decisions, trust why you're doing things. I don't need to necessarily understand every decision, but I need to understand and believe that you are doing it for the right reason. Right. And I don't believe and, that every event director knows all the rules like you as a head judge does. True. Right? Um, now, I'll tell you, if I'm if I'm if it's a if it's an event like a NASDAQ event, for example, that's a different story. Usually I'm handling all aspects of that, especially the higher divisions for the NASDAQ, because I know the rules on judging assignments. I know the rules for the rising star divisions. I know all of that stuff as far as. You know, the geographical diversity, not too many event directors. You can't have partnerships on the judging panel unless one of them's a referee and the other one's a judge. Right. You know, so you can use them like that. But there's all of those things that I know that a lot of event directors don't know. But when you're talking about a bunch of social competitions like Jack and Jill's and Pro-Ams and just Hustles and Hustle Jack and Jill's and Two-Step Jack and Jill's, because a lot of the events that I do actually have all of that. So they know which one of their teachers are qualified to be judging hustle. They know which one of their teachers are qualified to be judging two-step. I don't know all of the all the teachers, and I don't know all the judges, not anymore. Fifteen years ago, I did, because fifteen years ago the, the the pool was much smaller and there was a lot less events. I knew every judge. If someone showed up and they were new, I was like, "Wow, who are you?" You know, and I I'd have to ask who is this person and what are their qualifications. Mm -hmm. um, and now, you know, it's it's not that easy anymore. You know. Um, now, of course, depends on the event. You know, sometimes the event ends up becoming very heavy with much what I would consider more seasoned judges who have been around the scene for a while. And that becomes very, very easy. I mean, for me to just take on and just set, set up every contest and just organize the panel and make sure we've got exactly what we want and who we want on the judging panel. Um, but, you know, it just depends on the, the event. I think that I don't disagree with you, Deborah, but I think that certain events because they're so diverse in the types of competitions that they offer, and the judging panel is 40, 50 people, mm -hmm. I don't even know who is qualified to judge what. So I have to take the event director's guidance as far as who's qualified, and then I'll still do some switches. Well, that, that's you guys working together. I'm more like talking about when the event director just completely you know, takes over and makes the schedule, picks the judges, blah, 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 and all that stuff. And Basically, it's like, well, I mean, what are you there for just to what? Well, I mean, uh, to be honest with you, Deborah, I've had this this conversation. I couldn't even tell you how many times in my career when people come up to me and they say, hey, Gary, we want to hire you as a chief judge. I'm like, OK, what kind of involvement do you want me to have? Mm -hmm. Like, well, what do you mean? I said, do you want me to walk in the door on Friday and start running your contests and then walk out the door on Sunday and be done? Or do you want me to go to the other extreme, which is hiring your judges, helping you with contracting? And there's all different different portions in between that. Mm -hmm. 
Now, that also has a significant impact on what I expect to get paid. If I walk in the door on Friday and leave on Sunday, it's a lot different than if I'm working with your event and working on the event and the scheduling and the contracting everything else for three to six months prior. And some events have sat there and said, I want you to handle everything. And others said, well, you know, we can't really afford all that. So we're going to go ahead and take care of as much as possible as we can. And then we'll work from the other angle. And so it just depends on the event and the budget and the size of the event. You know, um, it just kind of, that's just kind of how the, the ball seems to roll as far as uh, my experiences are concerned. Uh, what, what would you say, the, what's the role that you prefer? Um, well, I mean, when, when chief judging and doing events is my primary job and that's the only thing I do, I prefer the other extreme because not only do I, am I much more involved in the decision making, I can, I can kind of feel much more comfortable with the qualities of the panels. And on top of that, you know, I'm also making more money, you know, so it's a combination of all that, which is nice. Um, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily happen because, you know, unfortunately, uh, there's it's a lot more difficult nowadays to get a job as a chief judge because so many people are willing to do it for next to nothing. Oh, I um, think that's everything in West Coast, swing, yeah. not just chief judging. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've had event direct. I've had events that have hired me. And then the next year they said, sorry, we can't afford you. And okay. then. The next year they come back and say, can we please get you back? We missed you last year. We want you back. We, now we know what we're missing. And it's like, okay, now you know what you paid for. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, because it depends, like you said, there are some judges, chief judges even that, that want to be that person that just kind of takes care of very little and isn't involved. And, you know, sometimes they might consult the event director on everything. And I'll walk in and say, hey, you're not in the ballroom. I'm going to make a decision. If you're not there, deal with it. And I'm only going to consult you on certain decisions anyway. And those are not competitor-specific decisions. Those are logistics decisions only. Mm-hmm. You know, how big of a, I mean, uh, let's say, how big, how many heats do you want? Do you want more? I'll give you an example. I was in Moscow probably, um, God, uh, five or six years ago. I was the chief judge for the Russian Open. And they... Um, you know, it wasn't a big competition. It wasn't a big event. And normally, you know, the contest was like 30 couples in the novice division. And normally you would go from 30 back then, you would cut it down to 10 or 12 and you'd be done. Mm-hmm. And the event director comes over and goes, no, 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 I want to have a semifinals. And I'm like, wait, what? We don't do semifinals with 30 people. No, this is the only event in Russia. This is the only event that these folks will ever get to compete in for they get to do once a year. I want right. to give my customers as much time on the floor as possible. So I want to go from 30 to 20 to about 10. So cut it by a third and then a half and then cut it in half. I'm like, okay, no problem. Now, there wasn't anything specific about any competitors individually, nothing like that. But that was what they wanted to do for their customers. So it was a perfect example. And it made absolute sense. Now, if it didn't make any sense, I would have said, uh, no, we need to go talk. And I would have taken them in the back room and we would have figured it out, you know, because I need to understand it because I'm the one that's going to have to answer to it. We're right. not going to go to her and go, why did, why did the chief judge do three heats with only 30 couples? And then the numbers might be different than that, but that's a, that's, that's kind of the gist of it. So when you're putting together a judging panel, what is your ideal situation? What do you try to put? If, if you had all the cards in front of you, what would you ideally do with a judging panel? Well, number one, I, I, always want there to be um if you're talking about like level competitions and stuff like that i want there to be at least two degrees of separation so two levels of separation between the competitors and the dancers mm-hmm. um like for example you're not going to be judging intermediate if you're an advanced dancer mm-hmm. you know um it, or it, it should at least be an all-star dancer judging intermediate and below um and you shouldn't have new all-stars especially judging advanced I've had it come in where somebody walked up as a judge for All-Stars, and I was like, how long have you been in All-Stars? I'm like, oh, five years? I'm like, oh, okay. Now, the problem with that is that sometimes you go to some of the smaller events, and they'll combine advanced and All-Stars. And my logic there is I don't like to see someone judging someone that, that last year they drew in the finals of a competition, mm-hmm. uh, especially as newer judges. You know, once you've been around the block like Deborah mm-hmm. and I have, it doesn't affect you hey. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's a short block, though, right? Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like to see, obviously I like gender diversity. I'm not one of those people that wants to see the men, the, uh, 
I'm going to say this just because it is gender specific. I'll try to be less gender specific when I can, but I don't want to see all men judging leaders and all women judging followers. Agreed. Um, I like to have it split as much as possible um, and have at least one, one, lead, one primarily leader judging the followers and, and the other way around as well. Um, as far as the, the higher end divisions, I, I love, I prefer to see experienced to competitors um, especially in a classic or showcase, um, you know, in a showcase division, uh, in my opinion, if you haven't lifted or been lifted, then you don't know how difficult those things are. Um, so I don't feel really comfortable with that, but I'm not always given control over who's judging what. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, but that's, that's just kind of how I feel. And there are some people out there who have a total understanding of it, even though they've never done it, you know, um, I know some of the best judges and best choreographers in country Western, you put the song on at three quarters time, they couldn't do any of the routines they choreographed. Um, Halftime, maybe, but not, not nowhere near full time. And, but they still have the knowledge to be able to put stuff together and they're, and they're really great judges. And, but that's rare. Know, it is very rare. That's, very you know, rare. that's very rare. That's definitely not the norm. No. By the way, do you have a preference of size of a judging panel? Is there a minimum slash maximum you would like? Well, uh, to me, it depends on how big the, the competition is and depends on how big the heats are. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the bigger the competition, the more judges I want. Right. You know, the last thing I want is more judges than there are competitors. Right. You know, I right. want to have a, a, a five-couple final and nine <laughs> judges, you know, yeah. plus the chief judge and, you know, um, but, you know, that's, again, you're talking about a difference between social competition and routine competition. I, at least three. Um, the bigger, big, the much bigger ones, I'd love to see five to seven um, on each side. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, at least five when they get to the bigger comp. As far as the size of the competitions, you know, that to me is, um, it, it, it depends on the floor. The the size of the, da the danceable space on the floor determines how many people I can put on it. Right. And so... Um, you know, the last thing I want to really have to do is is have to do more songs because the floor is so crowded the judges can't see what's going on out there. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, makes sense. There are um, there's a lot of formats that we use in West Coast Swing, you know, for competitions. There's heated, there's spotlight, there's herd jam herd. Um, there's different arrangements, circle, line, scatter, and of course, lots of variations in size of competitions. Do you have a prefer preferred format? arrangement and size for judging West Coast Swing. In your opinion, what are the pros and cons of each? Um, now, uh, size I just addressed. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's mm -hmm. basically, I still feel that, that way. I, I mean, that's just something that to me, um, it makes sense as far as how big the floor is. Um, I remember running an event a year or so ago where um, the floor was longer like they normally are, but it wasn't as deep as normal. And they had a stage because it was a New Year's event. And they had a stage for the show. Mm -hmm. The stage stuck out. And when the competitors came out on the floor, it got really too crowded. And we were bringing out, we were going to have one heat. The competition was about 25. We got halfway on and I looked at it and I said, stop. I'm like, boom, count it out, cut them, go back off the floor. We're going to do this in two heats. I went to the DJ, said, that's too many couples for this floor. It's too crowded. We can't mm -hmm. do it. It just does not work. And so I, I'm, I learned it the hard way, but I'm, I'm also, uh, I, I'm not hesitant to go, wait, I screwed up. I got to fix it, you know? So um, I'm a big advocate of the circle format, um, mm -hmm. especially in um, prelims of a Jack and Jill. Um, and also in Strictly's, but there's a, a reason I'm kind of a big advocate of the circle format. Um, Let's hear it, because I'm not. It, it's mine. <laughs> I, I came up with it in the first place. It's your fault. Um, <laughs> the first time I put it on the floor at the at Greater Phoenix Swing Dance Club um, at the uh, the Fourth of July event and out there, um, it was just uh, I, I looked back at the scores and literally we went from I think it was like 115 followers and 95 leaders down to like 12 or 13 finalists, and of the 12 or 13 finalists, I think 10 or 11 leaders and followers, we could have literally gone from 105 and 115 to 11 and had the same 11 people in the finals without having to go through prelims, semifinals, quarterfinals, and then finals. And you think that's and, because of the circle? 
I think it was because the judges finally had the opportunity to spend more of their time judging and less of their time searching. Because the old format was we'd line up 20 couples and say scatter. And the judges would spend half of their time trying to find the people on the floor and not actually judging them. It's kind of like having the tablets. They spend half of the time on the tablet instead of looking at the dancers. Yeah. um, And that's something that's getting less and less. I I mean, as far as people are getting more familiar with them, um, I think for speed, they're great. But, you know, that's not part of the question that we're in right now. So we'll move on. We'll maybe get to that later. Um, But, I mean, I, I like... I don't like the circle in a final. I like mm-hmm. the line line scatter for a final, uh, unless it's too big. Um, or I might do, you know, if it's three lines, then it's, you know, you rotate three times and then right. you scatter if you want to. But even then the, the, the scatter is not, it's based upon how the size of the competition. My general guideline is no more than 15 to a scatter. So if once we're at 14, I'll go, yeah, go ahead and find a spot wherever you want to on the floor three times. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we get bigger than that, or, and again, it depends on the size of the competition um, and the size of the floor. Um, I absolutely detest the wagon wheel. Um, I just don't, it doesn't make sense to me. To me, when I, when I make decisions about competition format, I always, judge, I always weigh the benefit to the judges against the detriment of the competitor. So to me, the wagon wheel, although it's a great thing for judges because, you know, the wagon wheel concept is you got the center hub of the wheel and all the spokes point towards the center. Mm -hmm. So the slots all go to the middle of the floor, which Mm -hmm. no one ever does except in that competition. And especially when you have people going out there as a newcomer or a novice dancer who are inexperienced in competition, you tell them to do that, they're lost. But that's the detriment to the competitors. It's a positive because the judges always get to see a number if they're in the middle of the floor because there's always a butt pointing towards the judge. So that's the positive on the judging side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, Deborah, you and I are very similar in this. We walk the floor. I'm never in the same place. Yes. I go back to the corners and I sit in the corners usually. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the only reason I don't walk around the front very often is, sorry, Deborah, but unlike you, I, I block the crowd. They can't see through me or, right. or around me or over me. They can <laughs> right, see right. over you. They yeah, can't totally. See over no, me. no. Yeah. So I stay in the back, and yeah. I'll literally. I, and the reason why I do that very often is even in the line line scatter, I do that. Mm-hmm. And if I've got a couple or two or three that are kind of like really close, I'll maneuver myself in position back there where I can see them both at once, or see two or even three at the same time because I want to be able to compare them. Because I literally had one of my friends at one point in time come up to me and said, "Hey." And you had this person in first, or these two in first or second, didn't you? And I'm like, I won't confirm nor deny that, but why? They said, because I saw you. You kept doing this. Oh, looking back, back and forth. forth. Looking, it looked like I was watching tennis, a very slow game of tennis. And I was like, okay, I got to change that. So I, that's when I started to go, okay, I'm going to get myself lined up on the floor where I can see them in the same plane without having to move back and forth. And be the you know because my head sticks above the crowd already. If people see it bouncing back and forth, they're going to see everything. Well, my problem with the circle is is that as a judge, I feel like there's always a judge in my way when I'm trying to watch dancing. That's number one. And number two, I feel it's important to watch dancers not face on, but from farther across the room, so that one they don't mug you because they love to mug you. Um, but two, you get a a, a larger perspective you can compare several dancers couples by looking across the room or so if, yeah. I, if i'm on one side of the room i'm not looking actually what's in front of me i might be Bingo. looking right what's across i call me. it judging judging a wedge right you know, judging a wedge so you're judging a portion of the floor at the same time yeah and the, the only positive for me about about the circle is is that uh i i keep one focal point as, as soon as the circles you know as soon as they make that circle, I pick one couple and I know that that's whatever, wherever they rotate, that's how I find everyone else right. when the circle rotates. Cause I consistently, um, yeah. uh, walk around, but I, I I'm going to tell you that for the most part, my scores are exactly or, or better than the judges that stand in the middle. Cause I feel like they miss out on some yeah. couples. I'm not a big fan of the idea of standing in the middle either. You know, I, I love the circle format for organizational reasons only. You know, when I when when I first brought that out, the only people that really, truly hated it were the videographers back then because they all used stationary video and they had all that blank space in the middle of the floor. Right. And so then we got to the point where it's like, okay, we've got plenty of room. 
And let's get them in the circle format, but let's have you move in or out and use the floor. And then it got to the point where now they put all the judges in the middle, and, I, and I'm not a big fan of that. Um, I'm not going to stop people from doing it. Right. Um, but, you know, I want the dancers to have as much of the floor as possible. And as long as they don't mug the outside of the floor so they actually have room to get around the edges, then that's great. But, again, it depends on the size of the floor. But, I mean, I judge, just like you were saying, I judge in, in, in segments or wedges. You know, if it's a circle, I'll, you know, I'm in the back, in the, you know, stage right, I'm judging basically that third of the floor. And then, again, it's not, it's, it's an unfair advantage I have, but I can sit in the back corner of the floor and pretty much get 90% of the people because I can see across to the other one. When I used to judge, when they ever they had any elevated platforms, I would always be up on the elevated platforms and just watching the entire floor. I do that you as know? well. I still yeah, walk I, around and use the elevated platform together. Yeah, I think the idea of staying in one place all the time is just not, you know, it's not uh, beneficial. You should be moving around. Um, and the one thing I really hate about the circle is when the judges get into their circle and then they all start at the same point. So all oh, of a sudden right. you look at it and every judge is looking at the couple number one at the yeah. same time. And I've actually told judges before that, I said, guys, pick different parts of the floor and and, you know, don't all start at number one or start at number the last couple and judge backwards. Please pick different spots. What do you think of the just having like the competitors in different lines that rotate? Because that's also oh. a way to track where competitors are without doing the circle. I do like that as well. Um, uh, and that yeah, primarily because you can literally you're judging basically even if you judge from the sides which again, I spend most of my time in the corners. Mm -hmm. I'll judge from the side and in, in the corner and I can move and, and I can see half the floor from one side of the floor and half the floor from the other side of the floor. Um, and that works well. I don't think it works well in a Jack and Jill prelim where you are, you know, trying to do rotations yeah. and everything else. It's just not um, organized in that manner, but yeah. I think it's great for finals. Mm -hmm. um, especially in a heated, in a, in a, a, like a strictly swing final. It doesn't really matter what, it's great for finals, period. Yeah, I think I've seen no. it mostly used for strictlys where, like you said, you're not rotating partners. Right. Yeah. Um, I like to use that even in a strictly prelims. I mean, it doesn't matter to me if, a, if they want to do, you know, lines for prelims. I, I don't care. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter as much. To me, it's all about organizing and making uh, all the rotations and everything happen as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. You know? Do you have an opinion on... Uh, whether to spotlight finals for certain level divisions? You know, not really. Um, I, I think it depends. You know, a lot of people are hung up on the idea about getting spotlights all the time, but, you know, sometimes it takes way too long and it depends on how many competitions you have at the event. Mm -hmm. You know, some events that is their niche. Everyone gets to be at a spotlight final and people love that. Like, um, I believe DCSX does that. Dave Moldo Swin Diego did that too. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's great when you have the time in your schedule to do it. Um, but not every event does. And if you're able to organize it in that manner, that's fabulous. Um, it's not a necessity to me. Um, the, the idea of the herd jam herd or what, you know, what we used mm -hmm. to call just the spotlight jam. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, some people have tried to claim ownership of it and invention of it, but it was basically a phrase battle we stole from Lindy. Um, right. You know, but the idea of that was, and, and I, I tell the judges the same thing, in the lower divisions, the spotlight's going to be shorter and going to weigh that spotlight lo less. As we move up in the divisions, like if you happen to have an all-star division with uh, the spotlight jam and they're going to be dancing for a minute, that might be 75% of their score. Whereas with a novice or newcomer, it might be 25% of their score. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the old thing that used to be, uh, from what I hear, I've never seen it, but I heard that some uh, Lindy dancers told me that when they did that idea about the spotlight jam, the, the, uh, the, the rolling spotlight, whatever you want to call it, the first song was never even judged. That mm -hmm. song was a warm-up song. It's where you can establish your connection with your partner. Mm -hmm. Nothing else. And then the judges basically started to judge at the spotlight, and then they used the all-skate to break the ties. I like that idea for West Coast. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be great, but, you know. Well, the only problem with what the, do I know? The only problem with the Herd Jam Herd is if you play one song, yeah. competitors are getting different parts Hate of the it. song. 
I like the idea of two uh, different songs, but right. it gets very difficult, especially if you happen to have like a 15 couple final to get songs that are all fair and even. Yes. Well, but also I think, you know, playing one song too, I mean, you know, by couple number, I'm going to say five, that, that couple's figured out what part of the song they're going to get and what they're going to do. Yeah. And so they have, it to take, couple it number, take... they have to be couple number 15 and they didn't know the song before it started by the time they get the round of it. <laughs> right, right. So it kind of takes away the spontaneity of, you know, what, you know, our dance is all um, about. So I don't, I don't like that they do um, the same I've song. I've less and less of them doing the, the same song. Um, yeah. There seem to be more and more events that are just doing, uh, you know, multiple songs. And quite honestly, I don't believe that we can't find uh, 15 um, songs that are, that are equal. The problem is, is that most DJs wait till the weekend to make their music list. And what they should do is assume have 30 or 25 songs prepared and ready to yeah. go so that if they say, well, we have a 10, we have a 10 person final. Great. Now you've got another 15 songs that you can use in another final instead yeah. of like, you know, trying to like scramble to get, you know, 15 good songs that, that are equally, you know, uh, have the, the breaks in it, the hits, the this, the that and all that stuff. Yeah. Are you hearing this DJs? <laughs> <laughs> Well, there are some that are excellent out there at that. They yes, do a really, yes. really good job about that. Yes. I mean, one of the one of the people that I still remember that was, and it, it was probably because he's a lawyer and obsessive compulsive as far as his organizational was David Koppelman. Yes, David Koppelman was he, excellent at that. He was. Um, he yeah. So I mean, mm-hmm. he was one of those DJs. He passed away years ago, but he was one of those DJs that you wanted to to DJ all your prelims or heated competitions. Yeah, he was, but really not good spotlights. At it. But not right. spotlight. I I totally agree with that. Yep. Yeah. He have you great. seen the um have you seen the format affecting the outcome in any way? Like you mentioned judges spending more time looking for competitors. Like are there certain preferred formats for getting I I don't want to say better outcomes, but you know what I mean, different outcomes. Well, you know, I mean I think that I, hmm, I haven't really thought about that specifically, but you know, I think that if you, if you're, if you're realistic about how the old, the whole old method, which I mean, the, the way that we used to do it is so far back, most people don't even know it existed. The idea of putting 25 couples out there and saying, "Go find a spot on the floor," you okay. know, they wouldn't. No one would do that anymore. Uh, but when that used to happen, you did have a lot of the either the flashiest dresser or the flashiest tricks would get the judge's attention because it was just so difficult to find anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think now it has become a little bit better focused on that, but we still have a tendency to occasionally get distracted by the flash and trash. But um, I think that we're actually able to focus on more on the judging and less upon everything else, mm-hmm. or more upon the dancing and less upon mm-hmm. everything else, less upon people that are, you know, I mean, I mean, a great example of this is that when you used to do the whole freestyle thing, I mean, I, I remember watching, Strictly swings at the champions level, and I don't know if I, I think I have this story right. Um, and there were two couples in the champions division going back about probably ten years, and they would basically they would go out there in the heat and they would scatter all the time because the champions wasn't a huge division. And what would happen is these two couples, one of them would be in the far back left and the others in the far back right, and then the song would end, they'd switch places. The song would end, they'd switch places. <laughs> and this was always in prelims. And I feel you know like I know who to, you're talking about. You, you should know who I'm talking about because <laughs> Wayne and Charlotte Bott and Robert and Deborah. <laughs> yep. And they were their 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 whole premise was the prelims is about the judges, the finals is about the audience. Hmm. We have to earn the right to put on a show, and we're going to prove to the judges that we deserve it. And remember, we're the judges always stood in the back. Yeah, they did. They always right. stood in the back. Right. So. It was like, why you dance to the audience? And when the audience isn't, you know, you still need to earn your way into the finals. And then once you're out there, then the judges will be sitting between you and the audience. And then it's showtime. And, and I love that. But, you know, but what happened is when you did that, you would end up the, the more seasoned competitors knew where to go or where not to go. Or if they drew a partner that they didn't necessarily connect with well, they'd go hide as far away from the judges as possible to make sure that the judges didn't see the fact that it wasn't going to be a good dance, you know, or it's like, as soon as they draw their best partner, they like get right in the judge's face. 
So it, it takes all that away, which kind of it can be an advantage for some competitors that are a bit more strategic. Mm-hmm. And I like that. It kind of levels the playing field a little bit more. Yeah. Right. We will continue this conversation in next week's episode. So stay tuned. If you want to share your thoughts and reactions with us, you can post a comment on our website. You can respond to our post on Facebook, or you can share your thoughts in our discussion group on Facebook. That's still around. You can also email Deborah and me through our site at thenakedtruthwcs.com or through our Facebook page. We always love to hear from you. To get the latest news from us, you can like our page on Facebook, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter, follow us on Instagram at thenakedtruthwcs, and yes, you can always follow us on Twitter at Naked Truth WCS. How many we got? 75-ish so far. Great. It's amazing. You can also buy some of our swag through our online store. We have limited supplies of men's and women's shirts with our logo and other fun designs. Just go to the Naked Truth WCS.com forward slash store to buy yours today. We can ship it to you or we can get it to you at an upcoming event. Again, that's the Naked Truth WCS.com forward slash store. Also, we will be at Bridgetown Swing, so if you want to get a shirt with us there, come find us. We'll be doing our show live, Bridgetown Swing, Saturday night after awards. And if you haven't already, you can always subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review on Facebook, and if you're on iTunes, please rate us and give us a review over on iTunes. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Eric. And I'm Deborah. And that's the naked truth. But my favorite yogurt is Nusa. Yeah. Uh, and their texture is a little weird, but I like the flavor. And the God's one. What is that one called? (laughs) God's one. God's yogurt. Something something of the gods. The chosen yogurt. (laughs) 